Well, welcome to First Move this Tuesday. Great to be back with you as Wall Street bulls enjoy a strong summer rally. Investors hoping for signs of a Fed rate hike finale. Big tech earnings on tap and the AI gossip coming from Silicon Valley. And the IMF just out with an important global economic tally. In fact, the IMF's updated world economic outlook predicts growth of 3% this year. That's an upgrade, thanks in part to greater than expected resilience to challenges like inflation and the ensuing rate hikes. Though, of course, downside risks remain. The end of the Black Sea grain deal and the climate crisis having the potential to reignite inflation. And the IMF warning of fresh weakness in China's economy too. We've got all the details. But for now, China's officials so far failing to reignite growth via stimulus. But the message from the Politburo this week is get ready. Investors, as you can see, more than ready. The Hang Seng popping 4% during Tuesday's session. The Shanghai Composite also higher by more than 2%. We've also got word of a major leadership shakeup too that will certainly influence economic policy as well as foreign. Beijing replacing its central bank governor as expected, but also foreign minister Qing Gang, who had been previously MIA for over a month. More on all of this in just a moment. But for now, more from stimulus anticipation to blue chip elation. A mixed open expected on Wall Street, with the Dow coming off its 11th straight winning session. We're actually around 5%, just 5%, I should say, away from record highs now for the Dow. And you can see some green in Europe too, though mixed. Whether stocks have further a late July juice has a lot to do with the power prognosis and, of course, the Lagarde long view. Both the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank will likely raise rates this week. The question, of course, is what next? Inflation has, of course, come down sharply this year, but it remains far higher than central banks' target rates, not just in those nations, of course, or regions, but around the world too. Much to discuss, as always, but we do begin in Israel, where massive protests erupted after lawmakers approved the first of the government's controversial proposals designed to weaken the power of the Supreme Court. This drone footage shows protesters blocking a major highway in Tel Aviv Monday night while police use water cannons to disperse the crowd. And today, doctors and medical workers went on strike in protest too. Haddis Gold joins us on this. Haddis, you can tell us more about that protest movement, but what about the doctors and the medical workers? Is this a one-day strike alone or could they continue too? As far as we understand, it is a one-day strike, and I should note that emergency services are still functioning and cancer patients can still get their treatments, but otherwise they are on strike in protest of this bill that passed yesterday, this bill taking away the Supreme Court's ability to stop government actions that they deem unreasonable. Now, already there have been legal challenges to this, but I can tell you that the mood in Israel this morning is, uh, if for many of these protesters especially, is rather bleak. I want to show you the front page of some of these major Israeli newspapers, all of them have this same blackout. Now, this is an advertisement that was taken out by uh, a group, a protest organization that is uh, representing high-tech CEOs. And there's a message on here that says this is a black day for Israeli democracy. And I think it's notable that 
all of these newspapers, now this isn't an editorial decision, but that all of the newspapers accepted the advertisement to take over their front page. I think that sends a pretty stark message. But as you noted, major protests erupting. It was Protests were going on all day yesterday because people knew the vote was going to be happening on the parliament. But then, of course, once this law passed, we saw even more protests erupting and clashes with police. Dozens of people were injured, including at least a dozen police officers. We know that at least 19 people were arrested. We saw you know, police using water cannons, using what's called skunk spray. This is very foul-smelling water that they spray on the protesters. I can tell that it was wafting all throughout the area of the protest here in Jerusalem. There's been a lull of the protests this morning, I think, as people are taking stock. Already we've seen those legal challenges being filed in the Supreme Court. No word yet on an injunction from the Supreme Court. We heard from the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last night in a televised address to the country saying that this legislation was what he called a necessary democratic step. He said it will strengthen democracy. He also blamed the opposition for not compromising in previous months said they had tried to come to compromise negotiations, but those had failed. But he still said he's open to negotiations on the next steps that they plan to take. Because keep in mind, this legislation that passed yesterday, it's just one aspect of this massive judicial overhaul this government is planning to push forward that will completely reshape the Israeli judiciary. There's bills in the pipeline for things on like how Supreme Court justices are selected. And so what Benjamin Netanyahu is saying, he's saying, we're pushing ahead with this. And so I'm opening the door for further negotiations. Not clear yet whether the opposition will sit down with them. But the protesters say they will continue to protest out in the streets. They are planning further days of protest. But in addition to the fallout from the protesters, from the medical community, uh, we still have those thousands of Israeli military reservists who have said that they will not serve this legislation. Now that this legislation has passed, we're hearing from the British Foreign Office on issuing a statement urging consensus. And Julia, just in the last few minutes, we're seeing reports in the Israeli media that Moody's is tonight expected to release a report on the Israeli economy. Yesterday, we did see the stocks fall just a bit. When this legislation passed, it'll be interesting to see what Moody's say will happen to the Israeli economy as a result of this legislation. Julia. Yeah. Inward investment concerns, the weakness of the currency, all sorts of the implications, economic implications. Um, Hadis Gold, great to have you with us. Thank you for that report there. Now to China, where the nation's missing foreign minister has now been officially removed. Xinjiang is China's shortest ever serving foreign minister and has been replaced by his predecessor, Wang Yi. Mark Stewart joins us now. Extraordinary happenings, I think. The lack of information, perhaps, on the now former foreign minister and where he is. But the replacement with his predecessor going to have implications for foreign policy beyond this moment, too, clearly. Well, Wang Yi is certainly well known by Xi Jinping, having served you know, under him before. So maybe it's a true and tried replacement. Uh, but let's talk about what has happened over the last month, because this is being described as a surprise shakeup. The last time we saw Xingang was on June 25th, one month ago, when he was with the leaders of Sri Lanka, with Vietnam and with Russia in Beijing. And then suddenly out of the public view. In fact, earlier today here in Asia, at a foreign minister's briefing, a reporter asked about his prolonged absence and the line that was given, uh, no information to provide, adding that diplomatic, diplomatic activities are, are being carried out as usual. 
Well, several hours after that, we were sitting at our desks and we, we saw the news that he had been replaced. This is a man who has been one of Xi Jinping's most trusted advisors. He has served as the ambassador to the United States. He is the one who made some bold statements, almost a rebuke after that spy balloon shootdown, uh, and also was very involved with Antony Blinken's visit to Beijing. Yet in recent weeks, out of the public view, in fact, missing visits by key U.S. officials such as Janet Yellen and most recently John Kerry. But Julia, the point to be made right now is that the backstory, the narrative, the the lines in between, it is still not clear. But this is uh, but what is clear, this is clearly a bold change in China's foreign policy roster. Certainly is. Mark Stewart, thank you. Now, explosive mines have been discovered on the site of Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. That's according to the International Atomic Energy Agency. Officials in Kyiv had already warned that mines had been deployed around the power plant, which remains under Russian occupation. Alex Markart joins us now from Odessa, Ukraine. Alex, what more can you tell us? And do we have any sense of precisely where those mines are located in the vicinity of the power plant itself? They are around the outside, the periphery, uh, in, in a buffer zone, we're told, Julia. This information coming from the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and its chief, uh, Rafael Grossi, who put out a statement uh, saying that uh, some experts from the IAEA had visited over the weekend. They spotted uh, these directional anti-personnel mines in that buffer zone on the periphery. That directional point is rather important. They were pointing outwards away from the plant, we're told. Anti-personnel means that they're relatively small. The explosive there obviously designed to... Uh, to hurt or, or kill uh, people. Um, they don't appear to be a threat to the plant itself. Uh, these were put there, we are told, uh, by the Russian military who have occupied the plant uh, for quite some time now. Uh, and this comes uh, on top of the what was previously known about uh, mines both inside and, and outside. Uh, President Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials have accused uh, Russia of mining the roof. That is not something that has been confirmed by the IAEA uh, because uh, now Ukraine believes that uh, eventually at some point Russia could carry out what they believe, what they call uh, a terrorist attack and, and, and perhaps blame it on, on Ukraine. Uh, Russia has dismissed that, saying that that is, that is simply untrue. Julia? Alex, good to have you. Thank you. Alex Markart there, joining us from Odessa, Ukraine. Now, some rare good news from the IMF, raising growth forecasts, global growth forecasts for this year, thanks to some degree of resilience in the global economy. But it also warns that choppy waters could still be ahead. The agency says growth remains weak by historical standards and advanced economies continue to be the biggest drag. Christine Romans joins us now. The biggest economies may be um, the biggest drag or the advanced economies, but um, it's a recession that we've continued to talk about for, for more than a year and it never arrived for economies like the United States. This is welcome news. Yeah, it really is. And the R word, recession, I think replaced by another R word, resilient, Julia, because that's the word that the IMF used here. Looking at global growth of 3% um, for this year and next, and considering all of the headwinds, we just had a banking, uh, you know, snafu in the United States and also in Europe, uh, you know, not very long ago, you have all these Fed rate hikes and and tightening policy around uh, the globe, and still you have global economies that are, are, are moving forward here. But muddling 
pulling through for some of those uh, advanced economies. You're right, because you look at those forecasts, the U.S. economy forecast to grow by about 1.8 percent um, this year, according uh, to the IMF. U.K., uh, almost nothing, really, 0.4 percent in the German economy to actually contract by 0.3 percent. Also noting some risks to China and the Chinese outlook. Um, it's got a debt-laden um, real estate market, property market, uh, watching that space as well to see just how well China can c- continue to recover this year. But again, the R-word recession, I think, replaced by another R-word resilient here. Yes, an elegant way to put it. And the top priority remains conquering inflation. The battle's not done yet. The question, of course, for the Federal Reserve is, are they done after this week? And I wonder what Fed Chief Jay Powell will say about that. I mean, I I can't remember a time when his, his words always matter a lot. And parsing his words and reading the tea leaves is always, you know, a lot of fun for people like you and me and, uh, <laughs> and actually make, means money for the people who are investing in these markets. But it'll be very curious to see whether he says that they are going to continue to gun toward the 2 percent uh, inflation target or whether there's some sort of indication that maybe they're comfortable with something a little bit higher than that in the near term if they think there, there is progress uh, being made. So after the pause of the last meeting, I think 25 basis points is what the market is expecting. And you're absolutely right. What Jay Powell signals after that will be really critical, especially for markets that are sitting here um, just, what, one or two percent away from from record highs for the Dow and the S&P, just a few percentage points away. Um, That's really remarkable, the progress that the stock market has made this year with all (laughs) with all of these headwinds. It really is. And don't let perfection get in the way of progress, I think, and push too hard on the rate hikes and tip the economy into um, the recession that never came and has been very resilient. But um, the risk remains. There's another R. Christine. Oh, there you go. You're so good with alliteration. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay, coming up here on First Move, protests and power plays. How Israel's vibrant tech community is fighting judicial reforms, plus the Japanese materials giant JSR going private in a government-backed deal. We'll get the inside track on Japan's chip supply and technology ambitions. Next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited-edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to First Move. I'm returning once again to one of our top stories today. Protesters in Israel taking stock after the government's controversial judicial overhaul moved forward on Monday. Doctors have begun a 24-hour strike and thousands of military reservists are saying they will refuse to volunteer for duty. Also joining the fight, a host of Israeli tech firms taking out these all-black front-page ads in major newspapers, as Hadass was showing us. One of them is fintech unicorn Papaya Global, which Time magazine recently included in its list of 100 most influential companies. Its human resources and payroll platform is used all over the world. Papaya CEO and co-founder Einat Guz wrote an open letter to investors in tech, Israeli tech saying, we never imagined investing time, effort and energy fighting for democracy in 2023. But that's our reality. We will continue to champion democracy. We are tenacious, we are vigilant and we are fighters. And Einat joins us now. Great to have you back on the show. I, I vividly remember our conversation from last time. This was clearly not how you hoped progress on this form to play out. Yeah, hi, good morning. No, definitely. I think that we spoke a few months ago. We thought that eventually, you know, we're going to hear, we, we, we're going to say loud and clear the threats and the dangers to the Israeli economy, and we actually going to be heard. Unfortunately, we saw yesterday, and yeah, as you mentioned, we decided to actually kind of to publish and, and to make our uh, feeling quite publicly um, because this is a black day to the Israel democracy. And that's that's the message. The black front pages of the major newspapers are basically saying it's a, a dark, a dark day for Israel. That's a dark day for Israel democracy. Uh, this is not a dark day to Israel, because I think that the one thing that we saw during the last few days is the Israeli people at their best. People are marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. People are protesting on the streets. People are saying loud and clear, this is our country. And we are not going to let any government to change it for the bad of it. It's such an important distinction. Do you expect people to continue to protest? Will you in the tech community continue to protest? And how much faith do you put in an alternative, perhaps in the Supreme Court, weighing in here too? So I think looking, you know, I mean, we have two different fields that I think that are very major important to Israel, or maybe three. One of them is everything that happens in the Supreme Court. Second is everything that happens uh, in the global economy field. We are all expecting uh, to the unusual report that Moody's are going to report tonight in Israel time, so in a few hours. Uh, and I think that eventually the field and obviously the, the internal affairs of Israel, uh, and I think Everything around this country currently is not quiet, is quite at a mess. And yeah, we are going to continue to protest. We are going to invest our time. By the way, the second page of the newspaper said exactly this. He said, it's a dark day, but we are here to fight our country and we are here to fight the tech in this country. Um, and we are not here to just let it go and surrender. Do you trust Prime Minister Netanyahu and the government to abide by the Supreme Court's ruling or decision on this? The short answer is no. We don't trust the government that eventually currently operating only for its own good with zero implementation, with zero attendance to their citizens and to the states of Israel. So unfortunately, I think Benjamin Netanyahu used to be a great prime minister to Israel for many, many years. 
um, but this is not the current state. And this is what you put in your op-ed. You said that you believe the Prime Minister is putting his own survival above the interests of the nation and, and the nation's democracy at this moment. I remember one of the things that you talked about, and it goes to your point about a potential um, analysis on the economic impact and the investment impact on Israel of some of these decisions and, and reforms. You were talking about pulling the company's money out. You're incredibly successful. You have clients all over the world. Did you pull your money out? Are you operating financially from elsewhere? Or are you still there? Because there was still some hope, at least when we last spoke and still is, I think, talking to you. So, again, I think that we need to dif differentiate between two things. We still hire people in Israel. We are very big believer in, in the talent of Israel. We are living in Israel and we operate from Israel. We are not managing our investment funds from Israel, unfortunately. Uh, this was the reality since this project started. And this will remain the reality. If you're looking on the shekel and dollar volatility just from this morning, after the, the, the judicial reform or, or the yesterday kind of uh, judicial reform, a first step has been announced, you see the huge volatility. If you're looking on companies that incorporated, uh, that are related to tech investments uh, in the tech sector from the beginning of the year, the number is close to zero. Companies are not incorporating in Israel any longer. So we will remain, as I said, tech industry in Israel is not going anywhere. The only question is if tech industry will be operating from Israel and if Israel will benefit from the tech industry. It's a vital point to make. It's known as the startup nation. As you said, brilliant minds, innovation, great workers. People like to form businesses there. Do you think the risk is if this carries on that actually far from not seeing any startups incorporated in Israel, actually you see a, a brain drain? Perhaps people will realize exactly that they're the better off you know, this elsewhere. Is, this is this is already a reality. This is the reality in the last six months. And I think that the damages that are already on ground will be take years to recover currently. And bringing the trust of investors to invest in Israeli uh, incorporated companies is currently below zero. And unfortunately, if we are not going to eventually get back to our census, which unfortunately this is not seems to be the case currently with this government, um, this will have long-term impact on Israel. I'm very, very much concerned currently for the next two to three years uh, on, uh, that, that are related to Israel economy and eventually the impacts and the damages that we are currently uh, creating to it. Yeah, I mean, I have not checked the facts on the incorporation of, of businesses nor inward investment. The government's very welcome to come on and talk about that um, in response. But um, I can see question marks over, and we're already hearing it from the international community amid concerns about this, particularly when you see scenes like this. And of course, Israel's not the only country that's had protests in, in recent weeks. Do you think Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu cares about the risk, the economic risks that, that are appearing and will continue to likely appear as a result of this, to your point about putting his own interests ahead of the nation, because there will be consequences for ordinary people. Do you think he cares? Unfortunately, I don't know. You know, I had a big faith in uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I had a big faith with people that are uh, surrounding him, uh, people that proven themselves to care about Israel in, in, in the last few years, in the last decades. And unfortunately, it seems that they are all currently 
going into a route that they don't care about anyone else aside from the survival of this government. And this is the sad reality. This is what they are doing. So I hope that this will, that this is a temporary mindset. But currently, I'm very sad to say that I don't think that they care about any of us. Where do you think this ends up? If you, if you, as you keep saying to me, there's, there's two things here. There's your heart and there's your head. Where, where do you see this so, headed? You know, we, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, so I need to be, you know, constantly optimistic. And I see the people of Israel marching on the streets. I see the power of the people. And I think that eventually, you know, people are always stronger than governments. And this is not what the people of Israel chose. I think that uh, although people, some people are trying to say it out loud, this is not what people chose. People chose to live in a country that is Jewish and democratic. And we are not going to end. And honestly, if you'd ask me in our previous interview, if we would be still marching on the streets and having this conversation a few months ago, I would say no, but here we are. And we might meet again in a few, few months. And, you know, we will still be fighting until we will bring Israel back to track. Um, because honestly, this is our country. We care a lot about it. We all serve the army. We are all we, we all have choices. I think I mentioned it also in the last interview. Uh, we can operate from anywhere around the world. We choose to be in Israel. We choose to live in Israel. And there is a reason for that. And, you know, we are currently, honestly, just operating with our heart in order to change this reality. You're a great advocate. I think, for the tech sector and for um, what the people want, as you point out, in Israel versus the perhaps some politicians. Great to have you on and definitely come back and talk to us soon, please. Ainet is there, the CEO and co-founder of Papaya Global. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. All right. Thank you. Stay with CNN. Coming up, extreme heat continuing to sear our planet. A new report shows the devastating impact of climate change. We've got the details on that next. Wildfires continue to rage across Greece as intense heat plagues Europe and beyond, making conditions unbearable in many parts of the world. Now, new analysis says this heat wave would have been virtually impossible without man-made climate change. Jim Bitterman joins us now and has the details. You can talk us through the report, Jim, but what stood out to me is that those scientists were saying that climate change has not only drastically increased the frequency or likelihood that we get these heat waves, but it's also raised the temperature of them too. Exactly. The severity of, the, of these kind of heat events that we've seen uh, and weather-related events that we have seen over the last few weeks. This report by the scientists is a group of international scientists uh, who basically are uh, looking at the causes of the kind of heat incidents that we've seen over the last few weeks. And they wanted to get something down on paper right away. So they've made a comparison to the kind of things we've been seeing this year and the kind of things that have happened in previous years. And as a consequence, uh, they say that there's no question that humankind is definitely responsible. The carbonization of the atmosphere is definitely responsible for uh, a great deal of the kind of extreme weather that we've been seeing. And they predicted some rather dire things. If the things, if everything stays as it is, that global temperatures remain 1.2 degrees Celsius over uh, what they were in the pre-industrial age. If that stays the same, you can expect these kind of 
periods of extreme weather uh, in North America once every 15 years, in Europe once every 10 years, and in China once every five years. However, the thing is they are not staying the same and the temperatures are continuing to rise. And if they should get, as the scientists predict they may, uh, two degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels, then you could kind of uh, predict that uh, we're going to be seeing these kind of things every two to five years around the world. Julia? Yeah. I mean, some of the stats in this are, are quite fascinating. Climate change made China's heat wave at least 50 times more likely, according to this report. You know, what I also liked about some of the responses that people were providing was also some optimism in this, that this is not a sign of climate collapse. Um, was one of the phrases. It's just a recognition of the damage that we're doing and the need to take action and to take action more quickly. Exactly. I mean, part of it is they, they say you can adapt to some of this. I mean, you can do urban planning and have uh, cooling zones and uh, you, can, you can develop a better coordination between uh, the weather forecasters and the, so, and the social and uh, emergency services so that people aren't affected so badly. Uh, but really, the, the heart of it is what they're calling decarbonization. That is to say, use less carbon fuels uh, and uh, very quickly, they say it's an urgent need to uh, restrict the amount of uh, hydrocarbons that are pumped into the atmosphere. Julia? Yeah, that's the bottom line. Jim, thank you. And this is also a contributor to my next story. Global inflation may be coming down, but geopolitical tensions could mean that food is about to get a lot more expensive. Wheat prices have risen sharply following the Russian strikes on the Ukrainian port on the Danube River. It's also extreme weather associated with El Nino that's threatening food security and pushing prices higher too. Anna Stewart joins us now. It's a perfect storm, to be honest, between weather and war. Just take us back in terms of wheat prices, where they are today relative to the spike that we saw when war in Ukraine initially broke out. Mm. Can you give us a sense of where we are? Yeah, to give it some context, because we saw a big price move in terms of wheat yesterday. It's come down a little bit today. Um, But in terms of the context of the wheat price, from the peak in March of last year, shortly after the invasion of Ukraine, wheat prices have fallen from that peak by about 40% at this stage. So we're well off the highs that we did see. The price move yesterday isn't perhaps surprising, given that the port in question, as you say, is on the Danube River on the Romanian side of Ukraine. And increasingly, this port has become more and more important for Ukrainian exports, not least given the recent collapse of the grain deal, which had covered the much bigger ports like Odessa. Now, this operational safety risk, if it continues at this port, could put in jeopardy exports in terms of the shippers, the insurers that all have to help get those food exports out. And that could have an impact on global food prices. If you consider that before the war, Ukraine accounted for around 10% of global wheat exports and has critical importance really for many developing nations, particularly in Africa and Asia, who really rely on it for wheat and corn. And those prices, of course, could climb higher once again. And what about the weather, Anna? Because that's also playing a contributory factor too. What's interesting, the IMF have just updated their world economic outlook. They've actually improved the global growth outlook for this year. But the big risk, and it's unsurprising, is persistent inflation. And it makes particular uh, mention of food inflation. And on these two fronts, it actually even mentions the suspension of the grain deal and what that could mean for food prices. But it also mentions extreme weather, saying El Nino could bring more extreme temperature increases than expected. 
exacerbate drought conditions, raise commodity prices. We have seen farming impacted by extreme weather just in the last few months, really from China all the way to the US. Even last week, we had that story from India, which was actually limiting exports of rice as a result of the extreme monsoon season, which had caused prices to spike within India. They are limiting exports. That has a huge impact. India represents about 40%, I believe, of rice exports around the world. So extreme weather hitting in all sorts of different jurisdictions, impacting all sorts of different commodities is definitely going to play in to this food inflation story. Julia? Yeah, I can hear the former chief of the World Food Programme echoing in my ear where he was saying to nations, don't hoard when we have problems like this because you see this um, sort of ramping effect in, in prices. Many challenges. Anna Stewart, thank you. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Welcome back to First Move. One of the most important business trends of the past few years has been governments around the world exploring the benefits of onshoring. Supply chain shortages exacerbated by COVID lockdowns and ongoing technology concerns and tensions with China forcing many Western governments to offer huge subsidies to firms in hopes of expanding domestic manufacturing and ensuring the fee flow of goods central and critical to their security. Bringing manufacturing back home is also a potent domestic policy selling point too. The recently passed U.S. Chips and Science Act lavishes more than $52 billion in federal subsidies to help enhance domestic chip making. Intel recently announcing it will build a chip manufacturing hub in Germany, with Berlin pledging to cover a third of the cost. Then there's the world's largest chip firm, Taiwan Semiconductor. They're set to invest almost $3 billion on an AI chip plant in Taiwan. And Japan getting in on the action too. Japanese materials giant JSR is being taken private in a $6.3 billion deal by an investment firm backed by Tokyo. A massive financial shot in the arm for JSR and perhaps too a focus on security and global competitiveness by the Japanese government. Eric Johnson, the CEO of JSR Corporation, joins us now. Eric, fantastic to have you with us. Um, You have a big business and you have separate branches, which for me are all directed towards technologies of the future. But just explain what this deal ultimately means and why it will help you do as a private company, perhaps what you couldn't have done as a public one. Yeah, great. Yeah, thank you, Julia, for the opportunity. Yeah, so maybe to give some context, uh, JSR basically, we have uh, three different businesses, uh, different business sectors, Uh, a plastics business, resin business, which supports parts for uh, the electronic materials business, which supports display and semiconductor manufacturing and life sciences. And as you noted, these are high technical content businesses and they require constant investment, significant capital investment, and then expert resources in R&D. And in order for us to maintain that leading edge, we have to continually feed this space. Uh, And the reality is Japan has a very strong material science space and in particular semiconductor materials. 
And there, there are a lot of us in the space. And we think, of course, JSR is a, is a leader. Uh, and today, it's a real strength for the Japanese economy. But the question really is, is this sustainable in the long term, especially given the amounts of investment that's required? And as you noted, the uh, partner that we've identified is uh, JICC, Japanese Investment Corporation. And their mandate is to support uh, the enhancement of competitiveness of the Japanese economy. And in particular, their focus is on advanced therapeutics or biologics, which is our, one of our key strategy items, and semiconductors. So when we started to look for ways to advance our strategy, they seem to be a perfect partner for us. And so we approached them actually uh, to talk about really enabling both JSR's strategy, but also the bigger opportunity to enhance the competitiveness of a key strategic uh, part of the Japanese uh, economy itself. I mean, there's a lot in that. Is the hope then and the vision that you're suggesting that you sort of presented that there needs to be a national champion in Japan and there's too many smaller players that are spending a lot of money in what is a very cash burn industry, particularly with the innovation level and the speed of innovation at this moment. The hope is to have some kind of national champion and force consolidation in this industry so that uh, it's more efficient, arguably. Right. Yeah, that, that's that's an apt way to describe it. I, I'd hesitate to say one national champion. I think the, there is a reality. Our customers have already consolidated, and globally our competitors are consolidating. And when I have high-level discussions with my colleagues and, and other folks in the industry, there's a general consensus that this is a good opportunity for partnering and, and for a more efficient use of these really precious resources. But trying to gain real momentum has been a little bit of a problem. And so our sense is that by working with JICC, we can really start a compelling story to shift kind of the, yeah, it's a good idea, but not now and not us, to kind of a, a more people to be more assertive in engaging in that discussion. And my sense is that, and th this, is, this is kind of typical for Japan, in my opinion, once you start to gain momentum, you can have a big impact. So my sense is that um, we'll drive a competitive kind of set of activity, and other folks will also understand that you know, now is the time to start to move on partnering or trying to drive real efficiency gains in this space. I think every nation now is thinking strategically about this. Um, and it's not just about the uh, sort of the tensions, as I mentioned in the introduction between the United States and China. But I, I do think that um, there's often the case made that Japan sits between those two and perhaps there is a strategic opportunity in terms of supply chains and trust around the world to perhaps service both sides and, and, and grow in the middle. Can you see that, Eric? Is this sort of part of the broader strategy, whether it's for your business or I think for nation states, for, for security for nation states too? Right. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you commented earlier that this is a privatization you know, not a nationalization. And there's there's no political agenda here 
at all. In fact, JICC will be judged uh, by how well they do financially on this investment. But I think it's important to note that we have, we have customers globally and our opportunity continues to be to do the very best that we can to support those customers wherever they are. Um, and of course, there's gonna be policies that are driven by national agendas. And we have to be very sensitive. And you know, those are grabbing the headlines and you know, for good reason, a lot of people wanna talk about those. Uh, but there's so many more opportunities that are outside of those specific kind of restricted spaces that I think it's really important for us to embrace. Um, and you know, I'm biased, of course, because I'm the CEO, but JSR really has differentiated ourselves on our ability to partner very closely with our customers. It doesn't matter where they are. And so that, that's something we're going to be very, very adamant about um, in the future going forward. Yeah, it's interesting, your distinction between um, taking something private and being nationalised. You don't often talk about the exit strategy or going public again in a, in a nationalisation, which you obviously have suggested in sort of six to seven years, perhaps going private again. Um, can I, sorry, going public again. Can I ask, um, just in your mind, and I know it's early days, but you do have to think sort of three, four, five years ahead as a, as a CEO of a company, particularly when six months in this kind of industry is light years, um, what will JSR look like at that point? What, what will be the determinant that you say, you know what, we're ready to go public again. We've, we've done the shifting, the maneuvering, the, the transitioning that we need. Right. Yeah, we've got a few different scenarios in mind that we think will give us kind of the scale and the efficiency that we think is necessary to really have a globally competitive, sustainable business. Um, and, you know, frankly, I'm not going to go into numbers here because I, I just don't want to constrain myself for what those different opportunities may look like. But I think in, in a broad sense, that's really it. You know, we need to be a globally competitive, sustainable innovation engine. And, and to do that, we need to drive efficiencies. Very quick question. I have about a minute left. Eric, you moved to, to Tokyo, didn't you? You moved to Japan. You're clearly not Japanese. You're, right. you're an American. What's it like? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> What's it I, like being... I, I really yeah. like Japan. I've, I've really enjoyed it here. Uh, I've actually been with JSR for over 20 years. Yeah. Um, and I've spent a lot of time in Japan. But I haven't really been able to explore until I, I moved here in the last few years. And my biggest regret is my my language skills, but my uh, my <laughs> colleagues are infinitely patient. So, <laughs> so I'm assuming point. you're taking language lessons. <laughs> I am as 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 well as I can. <laughs> um, yeah, amazing country. I, it's a long time since I've been in Tokyo. I'll I'll add it to my yeah, list. Well, yeah, please please do. It, it's it's a great place. Eric, good to chat to you. We'll talk again soon, please, and uh, more in depth about the business. Fun times. Thank you, Eric Julia. Johnson there. It's my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Businesses and consumers that are working to reduce their climate impact know that the smallest details can make a huge difference. Take the Swedish retailer IKEA. Did you know that 5% of its carbon emissions comes from the glue that holds its furniture together? But if you want to make glue greener, it isn't as simple as it sounds. We visited one of IKEA's factories in Lithuania to see just what it takes. 
The Inter-IKEA group has more than 2,000 engineers, but Venla is the only one dedicated just to the glue that holds furniture together. I think glue is the most interesting, intriguing, complicated thing you can have. Venla is channeling this passion into finding more sustainable ways to manufacture products. Here at IKEA, 5% of the company's total emissions come from its glue. This is actually quite a lot because it's actually more than, as an example, the carbon footprint of all the stores that we have worldwide. Venla joined a glue task force at IKEA to tackle these emissions, which explores eco-friendly alternatives. You brought the recycled one as well. That's really nice. It's good to see them. For 10 years, they researched materials, met with suppliers, and even came up with a few puns along the way. We are sticking together and we are keeping everyone together. IKEA manufactures products mainly in five countries, but the Glue Task Force's work is finally starting to take shape here. This Lithuanian factory churns out furniture and particle boards, and it became the company's first to use bio-based glue for large-scale production early this year. Benler says this switch is more eco-friendly for two reasons. The new glue comes mostly from organic sources, and less glue is needed overall. So majority of particle boards are produced with this glue. And it's uh, fossil based and in a board there's around 8% of this type of glue. And next to it we have the bio-based glue. And it's made out of industrial cornstarch, which is not food grade, and the fossil based cross-linker. Bio-based glues have been around for a while, but it took IKEA a decade to find an affordable one that was also suitable for the company's size. These equipments are optimized for the old fossil-based glue. And now we are entering with a new glue system. It's going to take some time to make the machine work perfectly. The team's goal is to reduce IKEA's glue-based emissions by 30% by 2030, which would only put a tiny dent in the company's overall carbon footprint. But considering IKEA's size, even small changes have big potential. And Benler is certainly up for the challenge. It's still kind of just the beginning. Uh, we need to work harder to reduce the carbon footprint of clues, but also the auto materials. And even if we reach that point, there's always more to do. I don't think I will ever get bored of this topic. And it's already been a busy week in the business world. Elon Musk ditching the bird and embracing the X. No words. Theatre owners hail the movies that, selved, that saved the multiplex. And investors await what Jay Powell will say and do next. US stocks are mostly higher as the Federal Reserve begins its two-day policy meeting. Another quarter point rate hike is expected when the Fed hands down its decision on Wednesday. That's effectively already priced. It's already expected by financial market players. But as we mentioned before, the Federal Reserve's future policy outlook is going to be all the more important. Also today, auto giant General Motors lowered in early trade despite posting strong forward guidance. And post-it note maker 3M also raising its profit forecasts along with telecom carrier Verizon. Microsoft and Alphabet report profits after the closing bell Tuesday. What they say about their AI investments might be, in fact, more important than what they say about their bottom lines this time around. We will be watching for that. 
And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.